book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And I will read to you Matthew chapter 16, and then we'll also read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 to 25. So hear the word of God. First, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 to 25. Because one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see and understand the nature of your church, what our place is within it, how it glorifies you, and how it operates even for our own good. As we learn that Jesus is the source and strength of our very lives and our community. God, as you do, would you teach us, would you challenge us, would you encourage us, would you change us? By the power of your spirit, we pray together, and everyone said in Jesus' name, amen. The screenwriter and comedian Woody Allen once said that, I would never join a club that would allow a person like me to become a member. 
which I've always found hilarious because I think it captures the tension that many of us feel when we think about community life. The whole idea of wanting to be known and accepted and loved in community sounds great, but we also know that it's within relationships with other people that we come face to face, not only with their difficulties, but also our own difficulties. To put it another way, we all like the idea of community, but the reality of community is often far more difficult. And for that reason, many people have grown skeptical of this thing called the church. Some people even see Christian community as unnecessary after all. Isn't this just about some kind of private, personal experience? See, most people, as I'm sure you're aware, use the phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious. You've probably heard that. Some of you have perhaps even used that phrase. It's usually a way of saying, I'm spiritual but not religious. It's usually a way of saying, I believe in God, or I believe in some kind of deity, but I do not want to associate with an organization. I do not want to commit to a particular group of people. I was getting coffee with a friend in central London a few months ago, and we were praying together. And this woman walked by who happened to see us pray together. Always an awkward but yet potentially great opportunity. She's like, I noticed you were praying together. Obviously with an accent, which I'm not going to do. You know, are you Christians? And we're like, yes. And we said, are you a Christian? She said, I'm a spiritual Christian. And I was like, well, well, well. (laughs) Do enlighten me. (laughs) She said, I said, what do you mean by that? She said, by spiritual, I mean, I'm a Christian and I don't have to have anything to do with the church. And I was like, oh, that's convenient. It's a really interesting statement because if you look at what the Bible says, the idea of being separated from the church is actually the most unspiritual thing that you could do. Spiritual, but not religious, is usually a way of saying, I don't want to commit to a group of people. And that's why, friends, it's all the more shocking when you look at what the Bible says about the church. And hopefully you have learned and will learn today that the church is not only important, it is irreplaceable in your life. And if we understand this passage, we will not only see the necessity of the church, but have a renewed hope for the church. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 are clear. The church is not an afterthought. It's not an optional extra for heavy users in the Christian life. If you like Jesus, why don't you try the church? Like, it doesn't work like that. It's absolutely central. It is essential to the eternal purposes of God. And for that reason, it is totally unique. Jesus did not say upon this rock, I will build my nonprofit organization. He didn't say that. He said, on this rock, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is so connected to Jesus, as you've learned the last few weeks, that we are actually called the body of Christ. He is the head of the church. He's the senior pastor of the church, the cornerstone of the church. And up to this point, many of you might say, yes, I get it, I agree, but what does that mean for me personally? What does that mean for me practically? Especially when church life can be so difficult. Let's be honest this morning. Can we do that? Doing life together, living this out, this teaching of what Jesus says the church is, can be incredibly difficult. So how do we do this? Why should we do this? 
So to answer those questions, I want to connect what you've been learning about the church from Matthew 16 to this New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, like many other places in the New Testament, tells us that we were never intended to be isolated from other people, but connected with a purpose, and that purpose is Jesus Christ. We don't know that much about the author of Hebrews, but we certainly know about his purpose. This letter was written to a church of Hebrew Christians in the early, the first century who faced many pressures and they seemed to be on the verge of giving up. And some of you are there this morning. You've been trying out church for a little while and you have hit a wall. It's become increasingly difficult for you. But there's also a deeper issue with these Hebrew Christians. There was some theological confusion that needed clearing up, and so the writer seeks to establish them in the truth, and here in particular, it is the truth about Christian community. It is the truth about this church. And so from this text, I want to give you six reasons why belonging to the church is absolutely vital. Six reasons why you should commit to this church, if you call this church home, or any church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Six reasons why you should invest in the people around you. And I've written all these points as personal statements. And I would challenge you, encourage you to write them down and not just agree with them, but own them for yourselves as I need to own them for myself. Why should you invest in the life of the church? Why should you listen to the announcements and put your hand up and say, yes, I'm in? Well, the first reason is this. Because the good news is not my private property. The good news about Jesus Christ is not my personal property. What we've been learning is that there's no real Christianity without other people. The writer of this letter speaks to the readers as members, as partners, as friends, as family. Why? Well, before the author gets to the practical responsibility, he lays the foundation. God has always had a plan to rescue humanity and bring us into himself. And so he quotes the Old Testament there in verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them at that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. God would make us new by bringing us into a relationship with himself, giving us new hearts, giving us renewed minds that want to know and love God. But notice, the nature of this promise is not singular, it's plural. It's not just that he wants to write his law on my heart, but our hearts. This is something that we are to experience together. Is this true for you personally? Yes, it is. But it is also true for us corporately. And this will happen because the barrier to our relationship with God and the barrier between ourselves will be removed. Verse 17 Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. God says the primary problem, the fundamental problem with humanity is this thing called sin. This anti-God state of mind that separates us from God and separates us from each other. And God says, I have come to deal with that problem through my son. He's going to remove that barrier that exists between us and God. He's going to remove the barrier 
that exists between ourselves. And it's not going to be a temporary solution, but a permanent one. And it says that in verse 18, for where these sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Meaning that Jesus, the work that he has done, is done once and for all. You don't need a Jesus plus anything else. If you go to any church that ever says you need Jesus and something else in order to save you, leave immediately. Leave immediately. How can this all happen? Through the good news about Jesus. So please listen to what's being said, if I can put it simply. Jesus died to bring us together. Jesus rose to keep us together. Jesus died on the cross, verses 19 through 21. The author of Hebrews talks about the role of the priest in the Old Testament, which was to be a mediator between God and man, offering sacrifices continually because of our sin. But Jesus came to be the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice. And because of that, the result is there's a way in verse 20. A way has been opened for us, not just for me. Not just a way has been opened for me, but for us. It's plural. The barrier has been removed. The very thing that keeps us from God and from each other has been removed. Jesus died to bring us together. But the good news doesn't end there. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. There is a human heartbeat at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. And Jesus Christ, who is interceding for you right now so that you can know that you are forever made acceptable before your Father. Isn't that great news? And that also means that we can be forever kept together in community. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Here's why that's so important. You've been learning about this the last few weeks. It should shift the way that you think about the other people in this room. To use an illustration, you are not like a bag of marbles. You are like a cluster of grapes. Let me explain. Some of you are like, what? Many of us, we view church like we're just a bunch of individual marbles thrown into a bag. You're like touching each other. You're like in contact with each other. And for many of you, like job done. I showed up in a room with other people. I even shook their hand. Okay, which is a big step for some of you, right? Some of you, just a few of you, meet and greet time is like the worst thing ever. That moment when the worship leader, some of you are like nodding your head, worship leader's like, all right, and now you're like, oh gosh, I need another coffee. The person next to you, like, you already have a coffee. Like, oh shoot, like, I have to like shake each other's hands. Many people view the church as like, I'm just a marble put in the bag. I came into human contact with other people and now I can leave. I can go out at any time, jump back in at any time. But friends, we are not like a bag of marbles. Rather, we are like a cluster of grapes. From the outside, it looks similar. All these these little circular objects are next to each other. But what's the difference? They're connected by the vine. They're connected by the vine. They're connected to something. We are not just like a cluster of humanity sitting in a room. You are brought together by Christ. You are built together like a, a temple, as Jesus said, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are organically linked to each other. In other words, church is not just about a private, personal experience. True spirituality is not a private search for what is highest in ourselves, as many people in Western culture will tell you. It's a communal invitation to belong to God and to belong to each other. No grape on the end of of the vine says, like, I'm just on my own out here. 
Like, no, you're connected. And so John Stott says in his wonderful book on the church, listen to these words. He says, I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. The good news is not my private property. So why the church? Secondly, God calls me to be responsible for other people. So as you've been thinking about this metaphor as Jesus Christ as the cornerstone on which the the, the building blocks are, are placed, how does that work out? What does that actually look like? Well, Hebrews tells us here, after laying this theological foundation, this gospel foundation in Hebrews chapter 10, there are very practical implications. There are calls to action. And the first is found at the beginning of verse 24 when he says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. The word consider there means put your mind to work regarding another person. For example, when you make an appointment with your doctor, I highly doubt that you make that appointment with your doctor just to have a chat with her. Next Friday, hey, I made an appointment. You're like, hey, Deborah, good to see you. How are the kids? Great. Well, yeah, my kids are doing great. Yeah, I'm going off to college. All right, great. So uh, next month, shall we say? Like, that would be weird. Some of you are like, I do that. Is that wrong? (laughs) To each his own. No, the idea is you go to your doctor with a need, with a problem, with an issue, and as you begin to tell them, what does the doctor do? The doctor sits there and usually does a pose like, hmm, or something like that, or they're writing things down. I always wonder, like, what is it they're writing? Like, this man needs serious help, you know, (laughs) far beyond my remit. I I don't know what they're writing. What are they doing? They're considering you. They're listening, they're engaging, they're thoughtfully working through what you are doing, the situation you are in, and how they might help. That's the idea captured here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another. Don't do a weird pose, like, how are you doing today? Like, taking notes, like, hmm, and how long has that been going on? Like, it doesn't have to be that formal, but you get the idea. We're to be intentional in how we relate to each other. We're responsible to each other. Which raises a question for me and raises a question for you. Do you see yourself as being responsible to other people within this community? That doesn't mean that you make decisions for them. That would be weird. Don't do that. But it does mean that you make decisions with regards to other people, that you are not just an isolated individual. We're all connected, and therefore I have a responsibility. Understanding the way that I live impacts you. The way that you live impacts me because we are all connected in Christ. See, in our Western culture, the needs of the individual is often placed far above the needs of community. And sadly, we see this in the church. Our choice of whether or not to go and gather on a Sunday or go to a midweek group or a Bible study is often made on the basis of what I get out of it. I don't like the preacher. Not very funny. Too loud. (laughs) I'm not going on this Sunday. Or uh, there's some annoying people. We'll get there in a moment. At church, so I just don't really feel like going. But friends, listen, if this is how we live, we will never fulfill our call to love each other. We will never actually grow. 
God himself is relational, as Pastor Tyler reminded us in his call to worship this morning. And so he chooses to bring us together in relationship and to bring about renewal for the good of the coastlands. And it is a call. Consider one another. And this commitment gives you the wonderful opportunity of dying to your selfishness. How many of you are excited? I didn't get any amens on that. (laughs) How many of us are excited like, hey, welcome to church? Like, die. (laughs) Happy Sunday, everybody. (laughs) But there's a good sense in which we die to our selfishness. Part of our responsibility to continually get together with the aim of considering one another, figuring each other out in order to help each other grow. And that you not only look after other people, but they look after you. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Good. Because the third point is this. Why be involved? Because I need holy irritation in my life. Verse 24, he says, let us consider how we may spur on one another. Stir up one another. In the Greek language, it could be translated as agitate or irritate. Much like a spur digging into the side of a horse, we are to spur one another on. Indeed, this may not be what we want, but it is most certainly what we need. Here's what happens. Consideration leads to irritation. When people consider your life, when they watch your life, when they speak into your life, it will stir you up. It will even provoke you. And though as irritating as it might be, it's meant to provoke you to love and good works. So let me give a slight clarification. I didn't just give you a blank check to be irritating. Some of you are like, yes, I just get to be annoying to everyone. No, no, no. It's stirring up in order to promote love and good works. This is really key. Because we often understand love as something without irritation. But for anyone who has a family, you will know that sometimes there is an irritation in love. When people are speaking into your life. So just yesterday, I was driving in the car with my family. Which we haven't done for a while because we don't have a car in London. And my family revealed in a wonderful, caring way this irritating thing that I say. This really like annoying thing that I say. And my one child mentioned it and like, yeah, dad, you say that. And then my next child's like, yeah, you say it all the time. My third child's like, yeah. My wife's like, yeah, it's true. (laughs) Now, how did I feel in that moment? Was I like, thank you. I'm so grateful that I have four other people like constantly around me 24-7 in my life to reveal my, you know, areas of weakness and frailty and, you know, fleshliness. At first, it feels irritating, but then I realize the Holy Spirit of God's like, Tim, this is good for you. And I'm like, oh. I need this in my life to stir up love and good works. Sometimes love involves a little irritation. We need other people. Now, some of you say, but God's the one who changes me. Yes. He changes you within community. He changes you within the church. So my question is, for you. See, I think we've gotten this wrong in many ways. And there can be wrong ways we go about this holy irritation, which is why I call it holy, not bad irritation. There's two ways that it can become wrong kind of irritation. One, if you correct without affirming. And then the other way we go wrong is if we affirm without correcting. I don't know where you lie on that spectrum. Some of you are only affirming, but you never challenge anyone. 
You're like, hey, you're amazing. You're great this week. And there's all these obvious errors and wrong things with their life, but you just don't want to talk about it. And so you're just like, you're great. I'm avoiding conflict. I'm going to leave now. That's actually not helpful. But the other extreme is also true. So those of you who are just getting excited, like, yeah, we need to correct them. Just settle down. For those of you who only correct, but you never affirm, you're the type of person that comes up like, hey, hey, uh, I just wanted to talk to you. Um, I'd like to meet up for coffee. I just want to talk about a few things I've observed in your life. And you're like, oh gosh, have you ever had that happen? I've definitely had that happen, especially as a pastor. (laughs) So you sit down and one guy, no joke, like pulls out like, you know, a novel, like, okay, so here's eight things I see wrong with your life. And they go through them and like, and that's it. See you later. Like, come on. But irritation becomes holy when you both affirm who they are in Christ You challenge the things that are not a part of Christ and you remind them that Christ is the source and center of their life. Though it might be challenging, it's spurring them on, stirring them up to love and good works. So friends, my question is, are you taking your life seriously enough to understand that you need this? That you need people in your life like this? Are you taking your friends seriously enough that you actually affirm and challenge them when it is necessary? Are you taking this seriously enough to invest yourself in this? Because the gospel enables us to speak the truth in love. It's this consideration that leads to irritation, but it's meant to be directed by and for love and good works. My concern is this. Many of us, we base all of our commitments to other people on how little they challenge us. Some of you pick your your close community like, you don't irritate me, you're in. And who else doesn't irritate me? Oh, you never irritate me, so you are in. But this should not be so. We need other people. This consideration leads to a holy irritation. It's about the need I have for other people to point me in the right direction, even if it does feel like an irritation and I need this. And that's why, fourthly, why do you need to invest in the local church? Why do you need to be all in? Because it is not good for me to be alone. (laughs) And anyone who knows me would say, amen. It's never good for Tim to be alone. Hebrews says, in verse 25, chapter 10, do not forsake. Or in the Greek, it's literally, stop it. (laughs) Stop forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. There is something so good and so wonderful that happens when we gather together. Yes, it can be frustrating. Yes, it can be challenging. Are there imperfect people in the church? Yes, there are. Are there broken people in the church? Yes, there are. But just like your biological family, it's real. And just like your biological family, it will bring out what is real. Have you ever noticed that? It's very easy to create a group of friends or coworkers or colleagues outside of your family life. And to a certain degree, you can control what they see. You can kind of present yourself as someone who has it all together until they come to your house. And if you have children, they just see everything unravel. They see you get irritated and lose it. And you're like, I said, put your shoes on. I don't want to be my shoes. I said, put the work on the court. And you're just like, oh, sorry, just having a little thing. We're going to go into the other room. And your friends are like, wow, 
Jim's never like that in the office. <laughs> but just like family is, see, oftentimes people, they leave the church and I hear them cynically say, yeah, I left that church because you know what? I thought church was family. I'm like, did you have a family? Because my brother used to like beat me up every day. Like, welcome to family, <laughs> you know, like, but just like family is real, it brings out what is real. We often blame the imperfection of the church. Have you heard this phrase? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. To which, is I, to which I say, no, it's not. There's always room for one more. <laughs> it's a good one, right? <laughs> I stole that one. The church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. It's a seat at the back for you. It's, yes, we're broken people, but we actually need each other. Think about it like this. If I choose to live outside of commitments, if I choose to live outside of church community, I am giving myself a free pass to live the unconfronted life. I do what I want, when I want. I can pick and choose the elements of my faith like a, you know, like a buffet that I want to add to my life, selectively share with other people like me or people that I like that will most likely not confront me when I need the biggest challenge. It's not good for me to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. In fact, it is when our illusions are shattered, the superficial is stripped away, that you discover what real relationships are all about. If you share life together, gather regularly to hearing the word of God, applying truth together, then any fantasy that you have created about your life will be dispelled and it will be replaced by the truth. Friends, this is why the Sunday gathering is so key. We come together around Christ, to Christ, for Christ, to be changed by Christ so that we might live for Jesus Christ. We gather together under the preaching of the word. At the end of September, you have home groups beginning. This is one of the key ways in which you gather together, assemble together, like Hebrews 10 says. Why? Because you need to apply the truth that you are learning. Why do you have men's and women's Bible studies and other courses that, that make up the life of this church? Because it's not good for you to be alone. You need to learn to live out these truths together. It is so important. It is so key. Think about when you are born into this world, your, your design is such, such that you cannot actually survive without other people. To be isolated actually goes against our very design and God's purpose. In the presence of other people, under the preaching of God's word, applying it in community, you know what it does? It makes it hard for me to live a lie. It will make it hard for you to live a lie. And that is a good thing. We can't deceive ourselves into thinking we're more holy than we are. And we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're less needy than we are. See, not being involved in church because of its faults usually skips over a deeper reason. I just don't want my needs to become obvious. I don't want to be challenged. Let's be honest. We just don't really like being challenged. But that's actually why it's not good to be alone. You won't be changed in the way that you are apart from the church. So God calls you into community together. Transformation takes place. Or consider this. It's something that I've been reflecting on. Is I've heard a lot of stories of people that I've known kind of walk away from the the faith. And it's very sobering to me. And I've been learning this. The sins that are most likely to destroy you are the sins you are least likely to see on your own. The things that are most likely to bring you down are the things you are least likely to see 
all by yourself because we have blind spots. We naturally overlook certain things that might actually be our undoing. We need other people to come along. I need that. I'm so thankful for my wife. I'm so thankful for people like Pastor Britt, who's been my friend for you know, almost 20 years, the, the, the elders in this church, the, the leaders I've served with in Los Angeles and in London. I'm so thankful for these people who help me see what I cannot see alone because it's not good for me to be alone. Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Or to put it another way, do not abandon your post. He's not just simply saying, oh, don't forget about going to church on on Sunday. He says, don't neglect it. Don't abandon it. Don't abandon this. This is a part of what you need. And it keeps us from believing two lies. One lie is, I don't need them. The second lie is, they don't need me. How many of us believe those lies? One lie is, I don't need them. (laughs) I don't need those people. I'm kind of above, like I'm a super spiritual person. And I'm most holy when I'm by myself. (laughs) That's actually not true. See, many of us, we think spiritual, some of you might buy into the lie that you think spiritual maturity means that you don't need to be around other people. But spiritual maturity does not result in needing people less, but loving people more. Don't believe that lie. Oh, I don't need them. Or we could be in a pity party saying, they don't need me. Never notice when I make that amazing pot of coffee. I didn't get the pat on the back last Sunday, so why do I even bother? I teach those miserable four-year-olds week in, week out. Does anyone thank me? Friends, let's not live in our little pity parties. Come on. We need other people, and they need us. That's the way God designed the church, that we might be interdependent. Like you learned last week, the stones coming together, built on the cornerstone of Jesus. Neither of those lies are true. God created us to be dependent on one another. And as we gather together continually, something great will happen. Number five, I will, surpri- I will find surprising encouragement. I love in Hebrews 10, 25, it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Isn't that great? That this command is put right in the midst of that challenging part about considering one another. It also says we need to encourage one another. And I love this because it shows that God knows we need it. Friends, God knows that you need encouragement today. And so he gives you this gift of the church. He gives the church a command. Hey, when you gather together, encourage each other. This is part of your responsibility. When encouragement is absent, people will feel unloved, unimportant, and unused. But God knows we need reminders. So he gives us this this commission here. He gives us this command. What we need to do is to create a culture of encouragement. What would that look like at Reality Carpinteria? A culture of encouragement. I would suggest three simple practices that help create a culture of encouragement. Number one, point out evidences of grace. It doesn't matter how far people are from where they need to be. It doesn't matter how frustrating they are in your life or, you know, the areas in which they need to correct in their life. There will always, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, you always have a reason to be thankful for them. 
And so what you could do is point out evidence of grace. If Paul the Apostle can write a letter to the church in Corinth, which if you've ever read it, they have many problems. They were like Christians gone wild. There was like all these things that Paul needed to correct. But you know how he begins the letter? He says, I thank God for you. So you might think, well, pointing out evidence of grace. I mean, is there? Yes, there is. If Paul can say of the Corinthian church, I thank God for you, then you can say it of everyone else in this room. Point out evidence of grace. And what I mean by that is not just generic compliments. You look great today or anything like that. Not that that's a bad thing. But this is what biblical encouragement is. Biblical encouragement is anything that will lift a person's heart towards God. That's biblical encouragement. Anything that will lift a person's heart towards God. You can do this by saying, hey friend, I've seen God move in your life like this. I have seen evidence that you are a follower of Jesus. The way that you use your gifts, that totally has blessed me. Point out evidence of grace. Secondly, be specific. Don't just say, hey, you're a blessing. It's not bad, but like maybe you could say more. For example, hey, the way that you prayed for me the other week, the way that God used you to speak into my life, that was a blessing. Hey, the way that you served people on Sunday, you made that coffee, you taught the the kids, you were greeting at the door, that was a real encouragement to me. Be specific. Because when we do, we help others see and notice their own gifts and their worth in God. God gives us all kinds of different gifts and we learn to appreciate them and use them as we encourage each other. And my third suggestion is this. Start immediately. (laughs) Point out evidence of grace, be specific, and start now. You could start today. You could put this into practice today. After the service, during that time you normally dread of like meeting other humans, you could say, hey, you bless me today. By doing this and by doing that. Let's ask God to create that in us and increase it. Why? Friends, here's the last thing. And I want you to think on this as we prepare in a moment to go into a time of worship. As you are involved in the church, as you participate in this incredible plan that Jesus has of this thing called the church that he is building, here's what's happening. I am practicing for the future. You and I, we are practicing for the future. The author of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Jesus Christ. When it comes to love, when it comes to involving ourselves in each other's lives, never settle. Notice when it comes to love, he has a further future in mind. Their ultimate purpose, he says, until, keep doing this, until the day of Jesus Christ, the day that God makes all things new. Because here's the truth, friends. We are all on a trajectory one way or another. People are either heading towards the presence of God or away from the presence of God. Evangelism is helping call people's attention to that and showing them how they can be pointed through Jesus in the direction of eternity with God. And as a church, when we look at each other, we should not only think about what is happening in the present, but we should have their future in mind. Love, Christian love, is helping each other become our future glory selves. I want to help you in the direction of the future. Now, here's why I think this is key. Knowing that helps me help other people 
people. Knowing this helps how I relate to others, even the most difficult person in the church. So I want you right now to think of the most difficult person in Reality Carpinteria. That was easy. It's already there. You're like, ah, they're there, sitting row two. (laughs) But for those of you who are thinking of them, just know, just for humility's sake, you might be the person in someone else's mind. Just going to leave that there. Think of the most difficult, frustrating, immature person in the church. There may be, even be a need for you to go and to encourage them and to challenge them on some things. But as you do, please, for the love of all that is good and godly, have the future in mind. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wrote a letter called On Controversy. And he said, in the church, there may be times when you have to oppose someone. You have to challenge them. You have to correct them. And it is going to be hard. But listen to his advice. When you do, remember this. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have on earth to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. It's incredible. The person that might be most irritating to me now in the church will be closer to me in the future than the nearest friend I have on earth now. We are practicing for the future. And make no mistake, real community is costly. But there's both an example and an answer for us even in this chapter. Because you hear these points and you think, how could I possibly do this? Well, there's an example and an answer even in this chapter. Imagine someone in your home group, someone in the men's or women's Bible study, got thrown into jail next week unjustly. Let's say they got thrown into the jail for talking about Jesus. And imagine if you as a group going to visit them and holding a Bible study or a a home group could potentially get you into trouble. Imagine that. That's how much of the world lives today as the body of Christ. Well, that's exactly what the recipients of this letter did. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Here's an example of this costly community. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. You said, I'm putting something else above my own personal needs. I'm going to make the sacrifice. I'm going to count the cost to go and to be an encouragement and a support to be a presence in the lives of these other people. Now, where do they find the courage to love? It's found in the same verse, verse 34, down and later in the chapter. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. In other words, they went right back to where they started. They held fast to their confession. The same confession that Peter had in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is the Christ. He's our Savior. He's our all in all. They cherished what they had in Jesus above the value of temporary things. Friends, that's how we can live this out as the church. We cherish the value of Jesus above all else. Growing together is not going to be easy. It's going to be messy. 
It's going to be costly. But mess and cost are no strangers to Jesus Christ. Jesus had compassion on you. When you and I were imprisoned by our sin. But did he stick to his own? No. He joyfully gave his life. And he accepted a death on a cross in our place to pay for our sin. So that you and I could be brought into relationship with himself. He didn't keep to himself. He gave himself. And that's what stirs up love in me. And that's what the Spirit of God wants to do in you. As you think about the nature of the church, it's the love of Christ that will enable you to love others. It encourages you to take that risk and to count that cost. Or as verse 35 says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. So I ask you this morning, where are you in verse 25? Are you pressing on? Or are you giving up? Where do you need to be encouraged? Where do you need to be challenged? This is what Jesus wants for you. He says, I'm building my church and you're a part. This is how I'm going to bring change into your life. So for those of you who are holding the church and God's purposes at arm's distance, he invites you today because of his great love for you to allow those walls to come down, to receive his love anew and afresh and embrace the broken people around you as we are healed together by Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would do just that. I'm aware right now of the people in this room who might be thinking of the pain that they've experienced at the hands of the church. I'm aware that there is a potential for great bitterness to creep in and to grow. But I pray and ask in the name of Jesus that you would keep that from happening as the truth of your love comes to bear on their hearts right now. That they would hear your voice, King Jesus, saying, the same could be true of you. I could have separated myself from you because of your sin, but instead I gave myself for you. God, I pray that we would receive the gospel anew and afresh and that it would heal us. I pray for those who are isolating themselves. I pray for those who are distancing themselves. I pray for those who are making excuses for why they're not going to invest in the life of the church. I pray that all of those would fade away. And in their place, it would be the love of Jesus Christ. That they would be able to say today, the love of Christ compels me to others. I'm going to go to others because Jesus came to me. I pray for those who are discouraged, that they would be encouraged today. I pray for those who need to be challenged, that they would be challenged today. And I pray for those who do not know you, that right now, they would. That right now, they would say from their heart, Jesus, save me. Not because of what I've done, but because what you did for me on that cross. I believe that you died for me and rose again. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that's in that place, that they would do that even now, pray to you and that you would save them, God. And as we sing together and rejoice together, may you heal us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.